0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Policy Speaking, a podcast by the Public Policy Forum focused on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis emanating from the COVID-19 crisis, and of course, what should be done about them. You can listen to past episodes or peruse our Policy Speaking blog, or other PPF material for that matter, or on Twitter at PPFForumCA. Today, I'm pleased to be joined in policy speaking by Tamara Vrooman. Tamara is President and Chief Executive Officer of Van City, Canada's largest credit union. That's Van, as in Vancouver. In a world of revolving CEOs, she's been in the job since 2007. Prior to joining Van City, Tamara served both as British Columbia's Deputy Minister of Health and Deputy Minister of Finance. She was the youngest and first female finance deputy in the province's history. And how that happens tells us. All you need to know about Tamara. Back in 1992, with her degree in history, she applied for a junior analyst job in finance and was told, great interview, good writing, good analysis, good references, great grades, but history, we're worried that you can't add. So she enrolled in a master's in public administration, took every economics, statistics, and accounting course available. A dozen years later, she was the province's top finance official. She remains a strong advocate for equality, inclusion, and empowerment. Van City has half a million members and some $25 billion in assets. It puts its intellectual and financial capital at work to address the challenges that are out there, such as financial literacy and affordable housing. And now, of course, their most urgent challenge is the COVID-19 crisis. So let's talk today about what a member-based financial institution does in the sharpest and most severe economic downturn anyone can recall. Welcome to Policy Speaking, Tamara.
1: Thanks very much, Ed.
0: So, last week, Van City became the first financial institution that I know of to offer 0% interest on credit cards, and thought that might be a good place to start. Maybe you could walk us through how this decision came to be. Yeah, I'd
1: be happy to. So, what we saw in our membership is similar, I think, to what we're seeing in many communities right across the country. And that is that the swift response that we've had to take as individuals and as businesses to allow for the physical distancing has meant that it's changed virtually every aspect of our, of our daily lives. And that includes everything from whether you have a job and whether you can go to work, which is significant, to how you go about making the daily purchases that you need. And so while we were the first credit union in the country as well to offer six-month deferrals on all loans, be they small business loans or mortgages, and that was a very popular program, and we've been working with not-for-profits to make sure that we had emergency granting put in place through our community response fund, and we'd created a stable savings product that allowed members to earn a bit of interest in a guaranteed 12-month term deposit while generating funds for us up to $200 to allocate back to our community during this key time. The key gap that we kept hearing about was credit cards, because now everything's being bought on a credit card. Ordering paper supplies and tissue from your local drugstore, medicines, food, vegetable delivery, online subscriptions to support kids and young adults studying at home. Everything was a credit card purchase. And so we felt that we really needed to look at our credit card portfolio and make sure that the maximum amount of funds that a member could afford were going towards those purchases and that they weren't accruing undue interest. And so that's why we decided to put credit card interest to zero for those members who really needed. it in response to to COVID nineteen. And I must say the response to that from both our members and the public has been significant. It really it really did fill a key gap and a key anxiety that many, many people in our community were facing.
0: So free money though, zero percent, presumably these are revenues you use to run your business, to run Van City. So what kind of effect does it have on you to forego this revenue?
1: Yeah, well, at ben City, we've always been about members helping members. We are a cooperative as a credit union, and so we are owned by the people we serve. So our accountability is absolutely to our membership. And while we run a very, I think the word you'd use is a progressive organization from a social, from an employee, and from a climate and sustainability point of view, we actually run a pretty conservative organization financially. So over the good times, we've built up many, many reserves, and uh, we are well capitalized, and. We we have high numbers of liquid assets, and it's precisely for times like this that we need to allocate those. So we've been able to allocate a little bit of that in favor of our members during this key time.
0: the time you made this announcement, you asked if any of your members were having difficulties paying bills that they should get in touch with you or your staff, and I'm just wondering, what kinds of things you've been hearing from your members?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that has been very important for us to understand has been, I think we expected, based on how the physical distancing measures were introduced here in British Columbia, similar to the rest of the country, that those in the service sector, those in the restaurants and tourism sectors would be particularly hard hit. And certainly, We've heard from owners and employees alike in those sectors, but we've also heard from virtually every other sector as well. And so we have a very diverse membership base, over 550,000 members here in the lower mainland. And so we really do have members from right across the economic and social spectrum. And I can tell you that there's not a single sector that we haven't heard from, from a business point of view, that is in need of some kind of support. So I think we're at risk collectively of underestimating how broad the disruption has been to the economy and we'll need to think carefully about that as we think about recovery.
0: Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're all over British Columbia, but I'll ask a kind of lower mainland-centric question, I suppose, in a way. Housing prices have been out of sight there for a number of years, and I presume people have fairly overextended mortgages and a lot of household debt. Household debt is a problem you know, right across this country, but pronounced, I think, in the cities and in the large cities. So tell me a little bit about the mortgage deferral program, which most financial institutions have been involved in. And I guess why it's a good idea, because in a lot of cases, and I'm not sure, sure this is true for you, but in a lot of cases, you're really Taking your interest, and you'll have to pay interest on the interest later one way or another.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me respond to that in two ways. First, by describing exactly how the program works, and then talking about it from maybe a little bit more of a public policy point of view, uh, given your mandate. So the way the program works for us is we actually have always had a loan deferral program, at least since 2008 and 2009. So during the financial crisis, we also saw a need that was similar to be able to work with some members who needed it on loan deferrals. So it was not, we already had the three months in place. As soon as it became clear that the COVID situation was going to be longer lasting than we had initially hoped, we extended that to six months uh, in the same way that uh, banks introduced their support. And how it works for us is we don't charge extra interest. So if you had a $100 mortgage payment, let's say, per month, then we would simply defer those payments for six months. So on the seventh month, you would have $600 to repay. And we talked to you about how you can afford that repayment and spread it over time. So maybe it's an additional $5 a month or $8 a month or $15 a month and so on, until the debt can be uh, repaid over time. We also make sure that it doesn't affect your credit rating. So another thing that's really important is that people's ability to get well-priced, quality financial supports in the future shouldn't be adversely affected by this. So we also reach out proactively to credit rating agencies to make sure people's credit rating is not affected. And, you know, it's interesting, Ed, in these times when so much of our financial system is automated, think of everything being done online and either done by electronic transaction or involving big data and AI. This is actually one of those times when it really is a customized individual by individual solution. So we spend about 10 to 15 minutes. It doesn't take long, but we do have to contact each and every member, making sure we understand what their needs are, making sure they understand what their obligations are, and then structuring something that's quite unique to them. And then the rest of it can be processed online, of course, after we've had that initial conversation. And so we have processed over 5,000 of those applications so far, and we have a 97% approval rate.
0: I guess that reaching out to the members, talking to the members, the regular contacts that you'll have in any case through your branches and telephone and internet connections with them gives you a lot of insight into how they're doing. And you mentioned businesses before and small businesses right across uh, the spectrum feeling things. The $40,000 loan program is also one of the important programs that's been introduced and funneled through financial institutions. How is that working? And how long can that work for people with the uncertainty of, of when we will be back to any kind of, I guess it'll be a new normal, that won't be the same normal as before?
1: Well, it's interesting, Ed. From a policy point of view and from a public finance point of view, when we take a look at the last time we had an economic crisis although not, certainly not of this order of magnitude, in the financial crisis, the financial sector was at the heart of that crisis. And so what our sector ended up asking individual businesses and Canadians to do was to do their part by stimulating demand and going out and extending their purchasing power through lower price credit. And that had the effect of rebuilding the economy from 2008 right through to the beginning of this year in 2020. So consumers and businesses did their part and they took on additional debt as they were supposed to in order to rebuild and re-stimulate the economy. That also strengthened financial institutions and the Government of Canada's finances. And so now it's time that we do the reverse when the real economy, when people on the ground are feeling the pinch the most, How do we make sure that we take those assets that we were able to build up and that economic reserves that we were able to create as a result of them doing their part to help them? So the programs that are now being rolled out by the federal government, which has the power to do that, certainly given its credit rating and and given its debt to GDP ratio, you see that they're changing almost every day. And so every time a program comes out, they'll identify that there's been a gap, whether it's for part-time workers or individually and employed contractors or solopreneurs, gig workers, cultural creatives. They've been expanding the programs. And what I think they're really trying to do is make sure that people have a bridge from a cash flow point of view to get through this. Is there work for us collectively to do to understand what that debt burden looks like on the other side and to restructure it? over a decent length of time as people's revenue streams, either as a business or individual, come back to restructure? Absolutely. The longer this shutdown of the economy lasts, though, the more difficult that is going to become. And so the tension, of course, that's on everyone's mind, and it's certainly one that we hear about every day from our members, is how do we balance the needs to make sure that we can manage COVID 19 without a second wave, while at the same time extending a sufficient enough lifeline that it can be reasonably adjudicated and repaid on the other side. We're seeing businesses already starting to pivot and to make investments in their core operations that allow them to thrive in this environment and beyond. And so I do think we're seeing some change on the ground to respond to the quote unquote new normal. But of course, the longer this lasts, the more difficult it will be.
0: Yeah, so it seems to... Raise a challenge. I guess I'll put this to you as a um, as a former finance deputy minister, as, as opposed to your current position in life, and ask you. You mentioned the debt to GDP ratio. So the federal government has been in very good shape relative to other nations. It's had a debt to GDP ratio that's gone uh, almost 70 percent down to 30 uh, percent when this crisis started. I think the parliamentary budget officer now says it's going to go up to 40 percent this year, and we don't know how many years this recession will last but we know that deficits are hard things to to unwind. So I guess the question is, how long do you think governments can continue to keep people afloat? Is there a fiscal limit? Is there a fiscal wall that that governments will hit?
1: Certainly in the case of the governments of Canada, that wall is quite a long ways off. And notwithstanding the unprecedented nature and scope of the amounts that we're seeing as a percentage of, of GDP, they're still dwarfed by what we saw over the duration of the Great Depression. So there is fiscal reserves there that can go for some time. Is it ideal to do that? Of course not. I think some of the more interesting things to think about though, is if we think about the way that the finances in this country are arranged uh, between the provinces, cities, and the federal government. The provinces are not in as good a shape. Uh, certainly, some better than others. That the federal government is, and cities also will have a significant uh, obligation in terms of. And they're not. They're not getting any revenue at the moment either, for a variety, a variety of reasons. And so, thinking about the whole federation and how the fiscal arrangements work is something that I certainly expect my former colleagues to be paying particular attention to. Do we need to rebalance the Federation? Do we need the federal government to buy back a percentage of provincial debt? Because when you think about what the recovery looks like, uh, yes, the federal government has been using, as it always does in times of crisis, using its considerable power and the fact that it has a central bank to provide the needed support and liquidity into the system. But the obligations in the medium term, healthcare, social service payments, transfers to municipalities, education, post-secondary, those are all provincial obligations. And when there's no revenue and huge expenses, the only way that you can solve for that is through taking on more debt and going to the markets. And at a time when around the world, because of this has been a worldwide issue, sovereigns will be going to the debt markets with debt issues. I don't like our chances if we're competing against the government of Switzerland or something like that. And so how do we make sure that we've also got the, an even distribution? Because we are so connected as a country, it's not just a regional issue, it's a national issue. How do we make sure that the, the fiscal power is evenly distributed through the recovery. It's something that we're going to have to put our mind to in in creative ways. So just because the federal government has capacity doesn't mean we collectively...
0: Well, I guess we were already having to revisit fiscal federalism uh, before all of this happened because of certain pressures around the equalization system and other uh, means of distributing finances around the country. I guess it's going to become all the more imperative now, and those are always exceptionally complex and sensitive discussions that may be helpful that every province and territory will probably be a beneficiary.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's go, let's stay with the economy for a moment and go back to individuals. Of course, all of this ripples down to individuals, but some of it is more abstract and some of it is less abstract. And one of the things that's uh, certainly not abstract is losing your job. Or losing hours in your job and uh, therefore losing income. The numbers that came out about a week ago for March were shocking. They may not be shocking in terms of knowing that we've shut down the economy, but they're shocking in any kind of historical context uh, that you can place in, about a million jobs lost and maybe uh, two or three times those numbers for people who are in assistance of one sort or another. It was also striking that some groups, women and youth as examples, have been hit the hardest. So what are these numbers telling you about issues that have probably been very close to your heart for a long time in any case?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, there's been on a public health front, the way that people have talked about COVID is that it doesn't discriminate. We see people being affected from a health point of view in a very broad based way. There's no segment of the population, even young people, that are spared. And we saw some recent data showing that. But from an economic point of view, the inequality that exists in our society is absolutely apparent. So what we have seen certainly is those that were vulnerable before living very close to the line, either in terms of paycheck to paycheck because of affordability here, or because of a lack of benefits or support or gig work or gaps in employment. Those people are very vulnerable and fell very swiftly from an economic point of view. We had long lineups in our branches and in request for support and on our uh, call center lines almost immediately when the emergency health orders were put in because of, of that issue in our in our region here in Vancouver. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we, we look at the numbers all the time around Vancouver winning the uh, dubious title of the least affordable city on a, on a per capita and percentage basis uh, in much of the world. And while that's eased a little bit in the last 12 months, it hasn't actually profoundly changed. And the number and diversity of people who are in the lineups having to, holding in their hand, they're absolutely capable of doing business with us online, but they're holding in their hand their last paycheck from a restaurant, a landscaping company, a design house, a massage therapy clinic and everything in between. And they needed to get it cashed because they needed the cash and couldn't wait for the holds that we all put when we deposit things remotely. And they weren't also uh, convinced that if they waited, the business that had been a perfectly good business that had employed them for some, in some cases, many years would be able to honor that check, showed how close to the line many, many people are. Certainly the inequality is an issue if we're going to think about the kind of recovery we want that we're gonna to need to pay attention to when we come to the other
0: side. Well, I'm gonna come back to the recovery we want in one second, but I think it's very interesting the reference to people needing the paycheck right then and there, because we've known for a number of years that we have a lot of policy vulnerabilities. We have policy vulnerabilities and affordability of housing, particularly in cities. We have people, too many people living paycheck to paycheck without the resilience to manage beyond a couple of weeks if they get hit with something. We didn't expect everybody to get hit with something at the same time. That's that's an added phenomenon. We knew that gig workers had uh, vulnerabilities. We knew that our income support systems did not count on the loss of income being somehow another divorce from the loss of a job. And now... All of these things that we were worried about, and we're talking about, and have been talking about for five, ten years, have come home to roost at the same time. So I guess that does invite the question of what is the world going to look like when we come out of this? Will this become a point of reform in the way that the Depression was, in the way that the Second World War was?
1: Now that's an interesting question, and certainly it's one that have been reading quite a bit about, and you hear many people offering a variety of perspectives on. I actually observe the following in what we see of of course the longer this goes on the more profound the effects will be on the other side so i do think it will depend on how long a lockdown the true you know putting to bed of the economy lasts now because of the health crisis and uncertainty but if it comes back in a number of several weeks or a few months as opposed to several months or years i think what we will see is and i think there's a real risk here that those that were doing okay before we'll see an immediate bounce back. Their ability to travel, their ability to take a holiday, their ability to spend. In fact, they've got pent up demands. Our liquidity and deposits in this country from banks to credit unions are actually up because people aren't overall, aren't spending. And of course, holding cash and reserves during times of uncertainty is a normal economic behavior. But they will start to spend and they'll say, wow, what was that? Glad that's over. Uh, it's sprung back. The so-called B recovery will, uh, will be apparent to those folks. People who were struggling before, though, not so much. And I think they I really worry that the recovery will be quite uneven and that the high level numbers will mask some of the discrepancy about how uneven it is underneath. And that people who had a small business, a small local food distribution company, for example, who were really on the margin before, but still a profitable and thriving business, will find that because this has been a supply largely driven economic issue, that there's supply chains just, you can't chop a supply chain into little pieces and then expect to wake up again and have it, have it all just plug in as it did before. You know, the example I use all the time is we have a a small organic avocado importer out in the Valley and they've done a good job of being able to carry their employees across this time. But the likelihood that when things come back, they can just phone up their distributor in Chile and Mexico and they're there is not very high. (laughs) And so even if we're okay here, the supply chain disruption for so many and many many you know technology and 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 mobility and the cost of funds has men small businesses are global businesses too in a way that I don't think we really appreciate their ability to connect quickly and rebound is not going to be very high and certainly for people who are relying on that kind of employment which is the vast majority of jobs in this country are created by small and medium-sized business that's going to mean an uneven recovery for them
0: yeah I think it's it is a very important point as you put it an important challenge for policymakers because however we come out of this whether quickly or slowly A lot of things have changed profoundly. The macroeconomy has changed. The private sector and how it will be able to operate has changed. Our geopolitics are changing in the midst of this, or at least trends that were out there are accelerating and deepening the whole questions around future of work and about intergenerational equities, gender equities, all forms of equities are changed. And I think that at the Public Policy Forum, we plan to do a lot of work on this over the coming months, because there'll be a whole new context, I suspect, for what we do, and a whole new context for your relationship with your members as well.
1: Certainly, I would agree with that. There's going to be much that's changed. I mean, I think another thing that's interesting for businesses and business leaders is the belief and the realization that, Businesses don't just get to exist in the financial part of the economy. They have a profound effect on the social and the environmental part of the economy as well. And I do see everyone from shareholders to employees to customers to regulators requiring businesses to play a greater role in making sure that their success is evenly distributed, if I could put it that way across all of those aspects of their obligations right
0: well look let's finish up by going back to health which is what began us unfortunately down this very rocky path that we're on now so out in british columbia and i say this with with the utmost caution but the signs look relatively encouraging it seems in terms of flattening even planking the curve so maybe you can give us an indication how things are looking in bc now and indeed What lessons there may be that that have been acquired there, particularly since you started down the road a little bit sooner than some of the other parts of the country? What lessons we all should be drawing?
1: Well, certainly the ones that I I think are being uh, picked up on uh, right across the country have been as follows. Clear and consistent daily communication is key. And so we're very lucky to have in our provincial public health officer Dr. Henry, who performs that function very, very well. And she's a household name here. And and John Fluvog just designed some shoes in her name to support food banks. And so she's really become the voice and people look to her and listen to the information that she gives out. So credible, transparent information has been key. And what that has done is it has meant that I, I think the other thing that has been taken to heart here a little bit differently than in other jurisdictions has been absolutely being clear that we need to be physically distanced from one another and having no exceptions and putting some pretty stiff penalties for those who don't follow that direction for the benefit of the entire population. But also recognizing that if you push that down too hard, people are unlikely to comply for very long. And so I think we also understood that this was probably gonna go a little longer than many people hope. And so that balance between it's okay to go for a walk as long as you do it thoughtfully and only with people from your own home and in a socially distanced way has meant that the tolerance for this from just a daily living point of view, not in any way to minimize the economic parts we've been discussing, has been, I think, more stable. We haven't seen civil disobedience, we haven't seen backlash and disruption here in British Columbia in any major way. And now what I hear mostly from my business colleagues and in the community and from our members is, okay, we've sacrificed it so far, let's not jump back too early and have this all be for naught. So really the belief, okay, I'm with you, we figured this out, we can do it for a little bit longer, if that's what it's going to take to make sure that when the recovery starts to come and we start to go back to normal, we don't have to snap back to the current stage we're in. So I think there's tolerance, there's patience, whether that extends months as opposed to weeks, of course, remains to be seen. But in our own organization, we are an essential service. We do have branches open. We do have, just like grocery stores and pharmacies, we do have our Frontline staff, we put in plexiglass and all those things that you would expect. But we do have our frontline staff right in the heart of needing to interact with the public. And we've seen almost zero absenteeism as a result of the confidence they have in our members and the public to adhere to those precautions, as well as the investments we've made in their safety and well-being in terms of the changes to the physical environment. So I think that's a good sign in terms of our ability to get this right through the health piece, so that we can with confidence start to reopen the economy with the belief that it's not going to have to snap back again which would be i think quite devastating.
0: Yeah, well, peace order and good government, as we both know, is a constitutional principle in Canada, but it's actually become a political cultural principle, I think, as well, and people can understand the collective interest they have with one another, which they obviously do in this crisis. I think you're right, it'll be a very interesting question in terms of what the bounce back, the recovery, the rebuild look like, because it may be staged. There could be uh, second waves that we have to contain. The prime minister and and premiers and public health officers have already spoken about that. I imagine we'll be hearing a little bit. So it might have a little bit of a stop start uh, quality. And the communications that you mentioned will be ever more important and probably, you know, ever more nuanced and complex as well.
1: Absolutely. These are indeed interesting times.
0: Yeah, so very interesting times and a very interesting conversation for which I'm very grateful. I thank you so much for sharing your insights. I thank you for your leadership and, and that of your of organization. I think that good understanding of history is always a prerequisite for good decision-making in the present. I guess you can't go back to 1992 to say that, but I don't think you need to. Thank you very much for being with us today, Tamara.
1: Thanks very much, Ed, and thanks very much to the Public Policy Forum as well for the work you're doing to broaden the dialogue and conversation and generating insights in this key time.
0: I appreciate that. And everybody, that is a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum, and I want to thank our distribution partner, National Newswatch. Until next time, I'm Edward Grinspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.